You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by the generous support of fans just like you. Find out how you can support the show and get access to exclusive content, merchandise discounts, and more at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. If you want to learn even more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book at cacpodcast.com slash book, or check out our Curious About Cannabis online courses and educational events at the Natural Learning Academy at learn.naturaledu.com. I'm Ethan Russo, a neurologist and founder and CEO of Credo Science. everybody this is jason wilson with the curious about cannabis podcast thanks so much for tuning in once again so today i'm delighted to be joined once again with dr ethan russo um we're going to be talking all about cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome today um dr russo and his team have just published a really fascinating um research study about chs that we're going to dive into so dr russo thanks so much for being willing to come back on the podcast my pleasure yeah, so to kick things off, before we talk about the findings of this study and the implications and kind of all of that sort of stuff, I think there's a lot of um, misunderstandings about cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, what it is, how prevalent is it, how serious is it, that sort of thing. So do you mind uh, painting a picture for our listeners that may be unfamiliar with this condition or that may be skeptical? You know, there are a lot of people that don't even believe that it's real. Um, do you mind painting a little picture? What do we know and what was kind of the uh, motivating factors for you to kind of dive into this condition more to try to understand it? Sure. So this is a condition that was first identified in the literature in 2004, but looking back, there was an index case in 1996. And the first report was from Australia, but certainly far and away, uh, this condition is most common in the U.S. So cannabinoids are drugs related to cannabis, cannabis, but really the culprit here is THC or occasionally synthetic drugs that are higher potency versions of THC. Hyperemesis is a way of saying uh, severe vomiting uh, and a syndrome is a description of a disorder. So cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is a constellation of signs and symptoms that consists of severe nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and an un unusual uh, but characteristic uh, feature, which is that people often end up taking hot baths or hot showers for hours a day to try and alleviate symptoms. So this was a relatively rare condition. Uh, there was a review paper a few years ago that identified 115 prior studies covering perhaps several hundred patients. But um, this has become increasingly common. Uh, when we talk to emergency room physicians or gastro 
enterologists, they say, oh yeah, we see that all the time and they no longer report all the cases. So that's a mm. sure sign that this is of increasing prevalence. And the reason for it is the greater availability of high potency material, particularly cannabis concentrates uh, and the kinds of materials in vape pens. Um, so this condition only arises in a situation where someone has a high intake of THC. And usually this is after some chronic use. Uh, so uh, for example, we found that uh, people that have this averaged an intake of four grams of flour a day or high mm -hmm. amounts of concentrate intake. So um, we were interested in this condition because its pathophysiology had not been explained. That's a medical Easter thing. We didn't know how it worked, but there were theories. One of them, uh, surrounds the fact that THC is subject to what's called a biphasic dose response. To explain that, at lower doses, people are very familiar with the concept that THC helps prevent nausea and vomiting. And uh, Marinol, synthetic THC, was approved in 1985 in the U.S. to treat chemotherapy-associated vomiting when people were getting treated for cancer. But what is not common knowledge is that high doses, things flip, and actually THC can provoke vomiting. Um, and someone who has, uh, doesn't have this condition necessarily, uh, but if they have too high an intake, uh, like with a vape pen and they're not used to it, um, they can get nauseated and even vomit. Uh, so that is not unusual in itself. But again, um, so that part was clear, but why the hot showers? Why these other things? Right. Um, you know, basically it wasn't an explanation. Now, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of conspiracy theory uh, associated with CHS, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And one of the prevalent uh, conspiracy theories is that this is related to pesticide contamination mm -hmm. or use of neem, which is a botanical uh, pesticide. Um, I use myself in treating my fruits and berries. Um, but I can tell you from experience that uh, pesticides, while they, while they should be avoided, and hopefully everyone who's buying cannabis in any forum should have a certificate of analysis showing that there isn't pesticide contamination, the constellation of symptoms associated with toxicity due to pesticides is totally different from what we see with CHS. Uh, that just does not hold water. Bottom line was we needed an explanation for this syndrome. Now, it had been suggested occasionally by prior authors that maybe there was a genetic susceptibility. We know that some people are very sensitive to certain drugs and don't break them down, metabolize them properly. So we wanted to investigate uh, genomics of people with this. In other words, their DNA code to assess whether there are mutations that might explain it. Um, and our working theories were that it could have something to do with uh, the gene that makes the CB1 receptor where THC lodges, right. that's called CNR1. Um, we also wondered whether it had something to do with the metabolism, the breakdown of THC. 
and whether it had something to do with TRIP-V1, another receptor in the brain and also in the gut um, that is sensitive to chili peppers and to heat. Mm -hmm. Um, and that would help explain why the hot showers uh, seem to alleviate symptoms temporarily. And then another weird one, uh, that applying capsaicin ointment uh, to the skin alleviates symptoms. Capsaicin is the ingredient in hot chili peppers. Um, now, it doesn't work orally because uh, the absorption isn't good, but it is absorbed through the skin and can get into the bloodstream to the gut and the brain and reduce the symptoms. Uh, so those were our working theories. Um, and then we began the study. And I should probably quit and let you, let you ask the next question. <laughs> no, that was that was great. That's exactly what I was looking for. And you hit on a, a lot of really great points. Um, just recently, I uh, made a post on social media just about um, it was your your paper was so, so well timed because I made this educational post just about how CHS is more prevalent than we thought it was, and that more doctors and, and you know, just like you mentioned, more nurses, physicians, and things are reporting that as cannabis, you know, is becoming legalized, people are feeling comfortable sharing about their use with their doctors and things like this. This is becoming easier to identify, and I got a lot of pushback from people in the industry that you know were kind of getting fairly aggressive saying you know this isn't a real thing this is a conspiracy trying to bring down the industry it's all neem oil and um so one thing i wanted to get you to expand on just to address this what are the differences between pesticide the symptom differences between pesticide toxicity and chs that people should be aware of that makes it so obvious that it's not pesticide yeah well, the most common kind of toxicity with pesticides is what is called organophosphate toxicity. Yeah. Um, and this produces what's called a cholinergic crisis. Um, so there is profuse um, salivation, difficulty breathing, mm -hmm. uh, can produce coma, can produce seizures. Um, and uh, the treatment is atropine, an anticholinergic drug. Um, I know this stuff because I had the misfortune of uh, being up all night in a pediatric intensive care unit um, in Phoenix, Arizona, taking care of a kid uh, who was exposed to pesticides in an agricultural field. Uh, the good part is we ventilated him, we treated his seizures, and he recovered. Um, but um, even on a subacute level, it's just not the same. Uh, and I would just say categorically um, that this is a mistaken notion and it's dangerous um, because people who have CHS have a serious disorder that we're beginning to try to address. Um, and it's not going to help to have people naysaying what the true cause is, which is a genetic susceptibility related to excessive intake of THC. Uh, so yep. it is a toxicological problem, but not to pesticides, rather to THC. And it doesn't happen to everyone. Now, obviously, yeah. we don't want anyone to overuse THC. There are other things that can happen. But um, we know that certain people get this and certain don't. Um, and this was exemplified in our study where uh, patients with CHS were compared to those who were called controls. The controls were high volume users of cannabis, again, averaging about four grams mm -hmm. of flour a day, 
but who didn't have the symptoms and didn't have the diagnosis. So there's a distinct difference. We all know people that use a lot of cannabis and don't have this problem. Um, so again, how prevalent is it, you ask? Well, uh, we don't know exactly, um, but there was one study that examined it and estimated. Um, now, the methodology was a little suspect to me. This was done at Bellevue Hospital, a big city hospital in New York. And they didn't look at people who came in because of CHS. They looked at people who came in for other reasons, and then they subjected them to this questionnaire to see if they use cannabis, <laughs> number one, yeah. and whether they had ever had hot showers in relation to feeling sick. Um, anyway, something like a third of those <laughs> patients um, uh, had what they felt was CHS, but it's not the criteria that everyone else recognizes. Bottom line was, they extrapolated their population to the US population with an estimate that 2.75 million Americans um, would have CHS or a susceptibility to CHS. I think that's quite an overestimate, mm -hmm. but let's just say, for example, it was only a third. Well, that'd still be almost a million people with this. Yeah. And even if it were 100,000, it's a serious disorder where people end up with repetitive hospitalizations, uh, invasive diagnostic tests. And uh, one study from 2012 um, cited that uh, there was a cost per patient prior to diagnosis of CHS of $95,000. So this is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, and, and that was another thing I, I wanted to touch on before going into the study, which is how serious can CHS get for a patient? You know, can it become a life-threatening, you know, problem? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people are extremely sick. They lose weight. They can't eat. Um, there have been two deaths, at least, that have been attributed to this because of the vomiting, uh, not mm -hmm. a direct toxicity uh, from the THC. So there's sure, no sure. dose of THC that causes death the way that um, opioids do, uh, heroin or fentanyl. Uh, however, when someone is so sick, eventually things get so deranged that, uh, yeah, you can die from this. Uh, it has happened and has been documented. Yeah, and uh, another thing I've wondered about too are you know possible suicides associated with this that people may be struggling with this, not know what's going on, and not see any relief in sight. Um, and that's another side to the mortality bit that I've I've wondered about. Uh, just just showing how new this all is that we really don't have our arms wrapped around just you know all of these nuances yet of how this is affecting people and and how many it is. Um, and then going into the study, so you decided that you wanted to look at the genetics. Um, you know, you surveyed patients to try to understand commonalities. You know, among uh, people that were experiencing these symptoms. Um, how did you decide what um, gene mutations you wanted to search for? I mean, TRPV1 is kind of an obvious one based on on what you mentioned, um, but there were quite a few others uh, that you looked at. So, what went into that decision making? Uh, sure. Again, we had this hypothesis going forward that it could have to do with the CB1 gene, CNR1. 
Uh, we wanted to look especially at metabolism of THC and uh, the TRIP receptor, but it was a general look. We were looking for anything that might show up, and so there were some surprises, which we'll get into. Um, but, uh, you know, we put this um, questionnaire out there on various listservs and contacted authors of prior studies of CHS and really tried to get it out there. So um, we recruited uh, between November 2019 and October 2020, a year, and we had 585 responses. But then you always whittle down. Mm -hmm. We were extremely meticulous about who we allowed into the study as being the CHS pool. Um, so uh, we required three things. They needed to have a diagnosis of CHS, um, and they needed to have ongoing symptoms, which included the constel full constellation. So mm -hmm. nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and the hot bathing behavior. So somebody who had been diagnosed with CHS but wasn't using, uh, wouldn't get in now. We didn't want the possibility that a person like that could have been misdiagnosed. Uh, we wanted yeah. to make sure that uh, they really had it. So that got us down to 205 CHS patients, and we uh, included their survey results, um, their daily habits, and all kinds of other things. For the controls, we wanted people, again, that had heavy usage of cannabis, but didn't have the symptoms and didn't have the diagnosis. Um, we ended up with 54 of those. Then all of the people that were in those two groups were offered the genetic testing, which consisted of a swab in the mouth um, and then an analysis of the DNA. Um, this is where things got interesting. Because although we had 205 CHS patients and 99 agreed to be tested, um, only 28 of them returned the kits. Um, mm. Now, we have an aside here, which was we had a tremendous amount of pushback from the CHS community online. There were people that didn't like the fact that they weren't picked for any reason. Uh, there were people that accused us of uh, having only profit motive. Um, we had our reputations impugned, you name it. Um, but ultimately, we had 28 patients and uh, 12 controls for comparison. Now, that's not as big a sample as we would like. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, nonetheless, you subject things to statistical analysis, and when there are significant statistical differences, uh, it should still be a valid study. And apparently, the peer reviewers in the journal agreed. So ultimately, <laughs> um, you know, one does one's best. Absolutely. And you it's never know good. how stuff like that's actually going to turn out. You know, when you're uh, starting out with your initial population, you really don't know what's going to sure. come out the other uh, side. Uh, for naysayers out there, irrespective of what I've just said, this is the largest study of CHS to date. The prior biggest yeah. study was done by Mayo Clinic with 98 patients. So again, we had 205, and it could have been a lot more if we had used less stringent criteria for entry. Mm -hmm. 
and I imagine that this sets a stage for potential follow-up studies too, where now that you have a starting point on certain things to examine and, and whatnot, that you could pursue larger cohorts and, and even look at other variables and stuff in the future. This gives you some really nice kind of proof of concept. Absolutely. Yeah, that's our feeling. Um, but, you know, immediately there were clear differences between the groups. So we're starting off with patients and controls with equivalent, more or less, uh, intake of cannabis. Um, but then there were some real differences that appeared. 15.6% um, of the CHS patients had had a diagnosis of cannabis dependency or addiction. Um, hmm, over half, 56.6% had, had withdrawal symptoms. Um, and when people had quit uh, cannabis usage, the relapse rate was extremely high, 87.7%. Among the controls, uh, again, all heavy users, uh, only 3.7% had had labels of cannabis addiction or dependency, and 76% uh, had never had withdrawal symptoms. Um, so some clear differences there. Um, so even before the genetic testing, um, some distinctions were clear. Um, I could go on to talk about uh, the results, if you like. Yeah, let's go ahead and dive into it. Yeah, what did you uncover once you cracked open everyone's DNA? Well, we, we discovered uh, five statistically significant mutations comparing yeah. the CHS patients to controls. Um, and again, as I said, there were some surprises. Um, one of our candidates was CNR1, the CB1 receptor gene. So CB1 is where THC works and where the endogenous cannabinoids, natural cannabinoids in our bodies work. Um, and we didn't see a mutation there in the CHS patients. But this was very important because there's a, another disorder that's mistaken for CHS mm -hmm. called cyclic vomiting syndrome, CVS, not CHS. That is a different disorder, but there's confusion uh, for the following reasons. That's a condition with cyclic vomiting, but uh, it seems more related to uh, migraine. Uh, it's what's called a mm. form of roost yeah. of migraine. So this often appears in childhood prior to cannabis usage. Uh, when a child has episodes of nausea and vomiting without a headache, later on, they often will develop a headache. Now, uh, where things get confusing is patients with CVS have taken to using cannabis to treat it, and usually successfully, uh, but you see how confusion can arise. Interestingly, yeah. in cyclic vomiting syndrome, there is a mutation on the CNR1 gene. Um, so we've got a point of distinction there that we can establish now with laboratory findings. So I think that this is very important. Very, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, a mutation we did see in the CHS patients uh, is on what's called COMT. Uh, this one's mm -hmm. a mouthful, catechol-O-methyltransferase, that gene. So this is responsible for breaking down um, catecholamines in the brain. Catecholamines are 
uh, norepinephrine and dopamine, uh, stimulatory neurotransmitters in the brain, but particularly dopamine. Um, and then things started to make more sense. When there's a problem with COMT, it leads to an excess of dopamine. Dopamine yeah. excess uh, is associated with a number of behaviors, including compulsivity, uh, like gambling, sex addiction, yeah. and substance abuse, um, not just of cannabis, but cigarettes, alcohol, you name it. Um, this particular mutation, uh, localized uh, mutation, is also associated with depression, uh, rumination behavior where you can't get something out of yeah, your head, yeah. uh, increased alcohol intake, and some other disorders, attention deficit, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, and psychosis. So Interesting. unfortunately, yeah, I mean, uh, it opens up the proverbial can of worms. It means that mm -hmm. they have this mutation, they may have CHS, but they're also susceptible to these other disorders. Um, so again, a serious marker. And just to put this in context, we saw this mutation in 57.1% of the CHS patients and only 10% of controls. So the probability value on that is 0.012. Anything lower than 0.5 is considered statistically significant. Yeah. Um, so, you know, basically this means there'd be 12 chances in a thousand, uh, about a hundred and one shot that it's a spurious finding that it, it's due to chance. It's not due to chance. It's a 99% likelihood this means something. So that was one. Um, then um, we were correct in looking at the TRIP-V1 gene uh, that takes care of heat and capsaicin on chili peppers. Yeah. Um, we saw a mutation there in 71.5% of the patients on only 30% of controls. Uh, mm. This gene has been linked to anxiety and pain responses in the brain. Um, it also uh, has to do with control of neurotransmitters in areas of the brainstem that control the gut motility, how the, the gut is moving. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, yeah, uh, this has been examined before uh, the TRIP-V1 in relation to cannabis dependency, but they didn't find anything there. Now, the particular mutation that the site on the gene uh, where the yeah. mutation was hasn't been reported uh, before in the database that keeps track of mutations. But very um, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, but uh, here, what does it mean? Well, it suggests that CHS can be linked to the mood and gut disturbances. Um, and also helps explain this hot bathing behavior and why capsaicin mm -hmm. on the skin seems to be helpful. Um, so we were glad to have confirmation of that theory. So the third candidate uh, that we hypothesized was a problem with breaking down THC. And that turned out mm -hmm. to be true as well. Uh, so this is on a gene called CYP2C9. Cytochrome, uh, this is part of the cytochrome P450 series, which is a series of enzymes that are responsible for breaking down 
uh, drugs in the liver and, and sometimes other parts of the body. Now, in this one, we saw a mutation that was homozygous, meaning that CHS patients had two copies of the gene. Uh, and this was in 46.4% of, of those patients and only 10% of controls. And I should emphasize here, I don't know that any single patient had all five mutations, but we're talking yeah. about a susceptibility here. And it may be that if you have a certain number of these mutations, you're uh, at risk for this. Um, so CYP2C9 um, breaks down various drugs, but in particular, THC mm. and its first breakdown yeah. product, 11-hydroxy-THC, which is also psychoactive, uh, like THC. Yeah. So if we have uh, less than adequate functioning of this enzyme, it could lead to accumulation of THC, which would flip it from being a uh, anti-emetic, something that prevents vomiting, into being pro-emetic, that causes vomiting. It's also possible that um, instead of making 11-hydroxy-THC, that there's another breakdown product that's produced that mm. could be toxic in some way. Now, that's Interesting. really conjectural. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we haven't shown that. Uh, it's something we want to look into uh, when we have the resources. Um, but again, that one makes a lot of sense. Um, going on, um, we had uh, two genes that uh, affected uh, dopamine. I mentioned the first already, that uh, COMP. But uh, there was also a mutation seen on DRD2. This codes for what's called the D2 dopamine receptor. That receptor is the target for drugs that are used to treat psychosis, schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So this mutation was in 60.7% of the CHS patients wow. and only 20% of controls. So that was statistically significant at a 0.031 level. Um, now, drugs that stimulate the DRD2 cause vomiting and affect motility in the gut. Um, additionally, mutations on this gene are associated with depression and anxiety, two things that we see a lot in CHS patients. And unfortunately, uh, mutations, other mutations, not this particular one, have been associated with nicotine addiction, Tourette syndrome, and chronic pain. Um, but again, I think you're beginning to see the picture that yeah. particularly we've got two genes affecting dopamine, uh, one on the yeah. breakdown, one on this particular receptor. <clears throat> but between these, they begin to show you why we might be seeing uh, CHS, the nausea and vomiting, and the psychiatric yeah. accoutrements uh, that seem to plague people that have this. Now, I want to emphasize, I'm not casting aspersions on anybody that has this, nobody asked for this. Sure, yeah. I'm not saying that people will get these other problems, but they are subject to getting these problems. They're at risk. Um, so I think Absolutely. this knowledge, even though it may not be welcome at all, and we've had, again, a lot of pushback <laughs> on the study. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've had our material uh, 
removed from listservs and um, chat rooms and other things, but um, it's a, another case of the truth hurts, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just, you know. I was going to say, you know, the, the data is what it is. And the whole thing about this is trying to follow the process of the scientific method and figure out what we learn. And ultimately, this is about helping people. It's about being yeah. able to try to help people understand if they're susceptible to these things and if they're experiencing things, how to get help. And it's, I think it, it takes people a while because a lot of people say, oh, I don't know anybody with CHS. And I say, well, I, that used to be the case for me too until I started talking about it more. And I realized actually I do know multiple people that have you know wrestled with this and have been afraid to talk about it because of the pushback that we see repeatedly um, you know, throughout the industry whenever, I mean, this comes out anytime I do a podcast episode about anything that may reflect negatively about cannabis at all, people come out of the woodwork um, to attack and push back and everything. And it, I always try to emphasize this is ultimately about trying to help people and understand reality and what we're dealing with and how people can can support their health. And, and I mean, that's that's really what it's about. Sure. Well, thanks, Jason. That's very generous. I should just state in context um, that I've been involved in the cannabis space for 25 years. Yeah. And, you know, I've been a proponent of therapeutic cannabis usage. I've been a proponent of uh, liberalization of the laws. Um, you know, I don't like to hear about THC side effects, but, you know, it's crazy when people say that cannabis has no side effects. Of course it does. Everything does. Life has side yeah. effects, but, you know, again, there are ways of avoiding these problems. And one way is by trying to understand their basis. Um, so, you know, uh, I am really opposed to anybody that wants to plead ignorance or insist that mm -hmm. we should ignore something because it's politically expedient or, um, you know, someone's ox is gored. Uh, in a lot of situations, and it's not what we prefer, but um, I'm not going to back off just because we get pushback um, from people that prefer a different answer to the question. Uh, there was a fifth mutation. Uh, this one's a little harder to explain, but again, it, it shows some caveats about this. Uh, this was on a thing called the ABCA1, the ATP binding mm. cassette transporter. Uh, this appeared in 67.9% uh, of the CHS patients and only 20% um, uh, of control, so a p-value of 0.012. Um, ABCA1 affects cholesterol uh, and phospholipids, uh, fats in the, the brain. Unfortunately, this one is also associated with the accumulation of what's called APOE and uh, A-beta deposition in the brain in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and unfortunately, there are other risk factors. Um, dementia is bad enough, but um, people that have this kind of mutation, which was, again, homozygous, two copies. Yeah. Um, they're also at risk for coronary artery disease and type 2 diabetes. Um, so, uh, again, very sobering result. Um, uh, we were happy to find some signals that make sense and could be helpful. 
uh, we were really, again, struck by how serious this is in terms of risks, not just from CHS itself, but other health-related sequelae. Uh, so we, we think that the information is crucial from a public health standpoint. Uh, again, uh, beyond just the test, um, we hope that this can serve as a screening device uh, for people that may have these kind of problems. We'd like to avoid the situation that someone suffers with this um, over the long term and may spend $95,000 yeah. in tests and hospitalizations uh, trying to get an answer to their problem. Um, you know, so we hope that some good will come of it. Absolutely. And, and some things that kind of really jump out at me, too, is this also ties into a discussion about the endocannabinoidome and this expanded concept of the endocannabinoid system and the different variables that are at play and the interconnectedness of all of these different things that sometimes we talk about in isolation. We talk about cannabinoid receptors and stuff, you know, kind of in isolation. But this really highlights the interconnectedness of these systems and uh, so many of these pieces, you know, are kind of extensions of the endocannabinoid dome. Um, and so, you know, one thing that comes to mind that I wanted to ask you about is beyond THC and, and kind of like agonists of, of CB1 receptors, are you aware of any kind of dietary elements that may precipitate CHS symptoms that may also uh, modulate the endocannabinoid dome in, in kind of unfavorable ways for people with these mutations? Yeah, that's a very good question, Jason. I'm glad you asked. Uh, again, it's going to count. It sound like I'm casting aspersions again, but um, <laughs> uh, through our investigation and following uh, patients with this, we found that a lot of patients with CHS have very unhealthy lifestyles. Um, mm. There, again, has been a lot of substance abuse, not just a lot of cannabis, but uh, also alcohol, tobacco, etc., cetera, uh, and a lot of junk food in the diet. Um, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of processed American food is pro-inflammatory. Um, it's yeah. going to create problems, and this would include an exacerbation of CHS, in my opinion. So what could one do that's better? Well, again, the bottom line uh, treatment for CHS is avoidance of THC. Again, this has nothing to do with pesticides or neem. Um, yeah. But when people quit, within a period of time, which could be days to weeks in some instances, people have a, a remission of symptoms. Um, beyond that, um, I would encourage things that would increase endocannabinoid tone through lifestyle. Uh, and these include aerobic activity, um, you know, something that gets the heart rate going, whether it be running, swimming, uh, dance class, uh, you name it. Um, and uh, it's possible, we don't know this yet, but we know that uh, you can modulate the endocannabinoid system through prebiotics and probiotics. Let's break yeah. that down. Probiotics are beneficial bacteria, like in yogurt, kefir, uh, lacto-fermented foods. Um, these help regulate the endocannabinoid system uh, 
from the gut to the bloodstream and brain. Prebiotics are uh, non-digestible fibers that the probiotic bacteria like to eat. Um, so they don't have nutritional value uh, in themselves, but they help protect the gut uh, from damage, leaky gut and uh, irritable bowel syndrome, um, and seem to be associated with increases in endocannabinoid tone. Now, again, some of what I'm saying remains hypothetical. Um, mm -hmm. We would like to investigate these areas, and I do believe that this kind of approach could be a benefit uh, to patients with CHS. So thank yeah. you for asking that. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. When I when I first read this uh, uh, paper, my brain just started spinning in a lot of directions because you know, like I said, first of all, I'm like, okay, you see a lot of different elements of where the discussion is going in cannabinoid science broadly about all of these interconnected systems, uh, you know, seeing the dopamine relations, the TRPV1, all this sort of stuff, and then I also have questions about other things that we haven't even looked at yet, um, and then the comorbidities things. I'm so glad you brought that up. You know that. CHS is not necessarily a standalone condition. And I also wanted to get your input on this idea. Based on the research that I've been reading, following about CHS, it seems like, and it seems like the genetic research maybe kind of supports this idea too, that CHS is somewhat of a spectrum disorder, that it, it has over similar symptoms, but there may be slightly overlapping, slightly different uh, underlying causes um, that kind of fluctuate within all of those mutations and things that you're likely to see. Yeah, absolutely. Most disorders come in different flavors, um, you know, yeah. from mild to severe. I should also point out that CHS often doesn't begin as a full-blown um, syndrome. Often yeah. there's uh, premonitory symptoms for weeks to months where there's some baseline uh, nausea and even vomiting or some low-level abdominal pain before the actual hyperemetic crisis uh, occurs. But once somebody's in that, if they're continuing usage, um, again, it's unlikely that they're going to uh, get that stopped uh, without some kind of intervention, which may include treatment like with haloperidol or the mm -hmm. capsaicin on the, the skin. Um, but really, the bottom line is people have to quit THC. Uh, they're going to expect long-term remission. Um, and as I mentioned previously, unfortunately, um, relapse rate is phenomenally high. Uh, typically, yeah. people will stop cannabis usage or THC exposure for a period of time. Then they'll start back, often gingerly, but... Um, at a point where they've sort of reestablished tolerance and are escalating their dosage, uh, we almost always see relapse. Um, so that's unfortunate. Um, but people have a terribly hard time giving it up. Uh, and again, yeah. they're extremely resistant to the idea that uh, cannabis is making them sick. Yeah, absolutely. And that was going to be another question I wanted to make sure to ask, which is, what do we understand about the reversibility of this condition? Does it seem like once you've gotten through those kind of prodromal stages and CHS has really made itself known, um, is there basically no going back at that point? Or do some patients seem to show, you know, kind of a full remission and symptoms never, never come back? 
Yeah. Well, again, uh, absent THC exposure, people should be in the clear. However, uh, a lot of people have related to us that other things set them off, and it can mm -hmm. be the smell of cannabis. Now, I would tell you, I don't think that terpenoids are responsible for this, but they may be having a, a conditioned response yeah, uh, that yeah. they associate the smell with cannabis usage. and. The brain is a powerful thing, and you can call this yep. psychosomatic, uh, but ultimately it comes down to biochemistry, and whatever is mm -hmm. happening is creating circuits in the brain that's triggering uh, the vomiting. It's the same thing as anticipatory vomiting in a cancer patient. Yeah. Uh, they might be on chemotherapy, and they're okay the day they walk into the clinic, uh, but when they're subjected to the sights and smells of the clinic, they get sick already before any yeah. more chemotherapy is applied. This is a very well-known phenomenon. And again, you could call that psychological, but uh, there's a biochemical explanation for it all. Absolutely. And you, you can't separate psychology from physiology. They're all it's all, all one interconnected thing. People try, but I think they're making a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, they they often, often, often try. Um, it, it seems like maybe uh, psychology, psychiatry is, is in a kind of new era of really trying to embrace neuroscience. Um, but there's still sometimes I think uh, um, a sort of they sort of ignore a lot of the, like you're saying, the actual biochemistry. Yeah. They're more just looking at fMRI stuff and everything. But it's like, no, it still goes back to, it's all, it's all connected. Yeah. All the, and the, the bioactive well, lipids are an interesting kind of part of that. Sure. Well, it reminds me that, you know, uh, people know uh, uh, Sigmund Freud as the father of psychoanalysis, but he developed psychoanalysis because he was a neurologist and realized that at the time they didn't have sufficient understanding of the biochemistry of the brain, uh, that they needed an alternative method of treatment. And that's, that was the birth yeah. of psychoanalysis. Um, so, you know, people today don't believe in a lot of his theories, but he was right about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we're only just now getting to this point with these genomic tools, with tools for being able to look at at different markers in the body, you know, proteins and things that are being produced. So we're just now entering this kind of era where, where we can piece these, you know, bits of the puzzle together and, and get a more thorough understanding of what's leading to behavior. Um, so it's, it, I think we're still fairly infantile in that process of bringing that all together and, and trying to understand it. And uh, yeah, it's gonna be an interesting feat. Sure, and we're finding it increasingly difficult in the internet age, uh, you know, considering uh, when uh, there's the kind of pushback that we've experienced. Um, you know, it, we seem to be developing into two camps, uh, one that believes yeah, in science yeah. and one that uh, clings to their theories irrespective of any uh, scientific support for them. Yeah, and it's really... Um really discerning because it's an example of just what's happening broadly in our uh, civilization at large, it seems like. Um, and so it's, I don't know, nerve wracking, especially for like a science educator like myself. It's so disheartening to see this like kind of tribal, you know, thing happen. Um, 
where people kind of plant their flags in the ground and are like, no, cannabinoids can do no harm. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what to do with that other than to try not to engage that too much and to try to just keep sharing, you know, the information that we know sure. and, and try to keep a, a kind of calm, you know, discussion about it and the people that get worked up. You know, I, yeah, I don't know that I can affect them too much, but hopefully I can affect the people that are trying to listen to those people and, and right. kind of keep that camp from growing at least. Right. Uh, another piece of evidence I forgot to mention uh, in relation to the uh, uh, theory of uh, pesticide exposure, and that mm. is CHS has been described in relation to high potency cannabinoid agonists. What I mean are synthetic THC, um, uh, specifically things like K2, spice, uh, etc. Um, so these are much more powerful than THC, but they've been associated with CHS as well. And although those are toxic uh, drugs that shouldn't be taken by people, they don't contain pesticides. Um, right. <laughs> so uh, again, um, that's just a theory that doesn't <laughs> hold the proverbial water and is is dangerous at this point. Yeah, it is. I want people to avoid pesticides, but uh, if you have CHS, it's from THC. Period. Yeah, and and one of the last things I wanted to make sure to ask you because I know there's people listening that are thinking about this in the context of avoiding THC, um, and you mentioned that you've had reports of other things setting people off. Um, I assume that there's probably a desire when someone gets diagnosed with this to try to switch to CBD products, especially given that they're so, you know, available. Um, so have you seen reactions with CBD products and sometimes the trace amount of THC that can be in those products and, and kind of what should people be thinking about that if they're kind of thinking about getting off THC and switching right. to something else? Well, you asked the question in exactly the correct way. And that is um, <laughs> some people have seen benefit with CBD preparations, but many have not. And the reason is that most of those are not pure on uh, that many are uh, contain THC or contaminated with THC, even though they're not supposed to. My advice is that if somebody wants to try that, um, they need a certificate of, an, of analysis on the product on a current batch, not something that was done six months ago on something else. <laughs> Now, yeah. I, I really sympathize. This is a morass. It is incredibly difficult for the potential consumer uh, to try and evaluate products that they might get online yeah. or even in a dispensary. But we need standards in this industry. Um, you know, the industry isn't uh, free from fraud uh, or dangers <laughs> or toxicity. Yeah. So, you know, let us call it as it is. Um, it may be. It may be that pure CBD without any THC is going to be a benefit here, but uh, we can't say that at this point. Uh, it's another thing yeah. that we want to investigate. And I, again, this isn't going to be popular with some people. There may be other cannabis components apart from THC that are going to be helpful in CHS treatment, but that is theoretical. We want to find out if it's true or not. Um, yeah, but that is possible. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it to me, it, it makes perfect sense. Because once again, when you start thinking about modulators of the endocannabinoid dome, 
there's all sorts of directions this could go in to understand what beyond THC could facilitate these these kinds of reactions and it could lead beyond cannabis you know who knows may find out there are people that are suffering from emesis syndromes that you know they haven't been able to understand that maybe it has something to do with you know endocannabinoid dome manipulation trpv1 manipulation whatever um and so the segues into the last question i want to ask you before we sign off here which is um where's your head at thinking about the future of um you know, taking these results, you know, what questions have come to your mind after getting through this study that you kind of want to explore and kind of where do you see the future of CHS treatment going? Sure. Well, uh, first is recognition. Uh, we now have a screening tool uh, that will be available um, hopefully within the next couple of months uh, from Endocana Health. Um, we hope that this will allow people to ascertain whether they have the disorder or risk of the disorder and avoid um, hopefully unnecessary tests and hospitalizations. We are invested in trying to understand the condition better, uh, its risks, its comorbidities, other things that these people might be susceptible to getting. Um, and particularly what treatment interventions might be available because standard antiemetics, uh, drugs usually used to treat nausea in the ER, don't work well on this disorder. Haloperidol, a drug normally used for schizophrenia, mm -hmm. does, but that's not a drug that somebody wants to be taking every day unless mm -hmm. they actually need it very badly because it has a lot of side effects of its own, including weight gain or uh, sedation and even the possibility yeah. of developing a bad movement disorder called tardive dyskinesia. Um, so this is serious stuff. It needs additional research and uh, we hope to pursue that. That's great. Yeah, I'm excited to see um, how this all develops. And it's, you know, I've I teach classes on cannabinoid science fairly regularly, and I've started to get students that have come to me on the side and told me, you know, that they've struggled with this in the past and, you know, and that sort of thing. And so knowing that there's a, you know, it's like you've, you've kind of gone into the wilderness and now you're carving out the, <clears throat> the trail, so to speak, to kind of help people find their way, um, you know, is is very exciting because I do know that this, you know, has really severe negative impacts on the people that experience it. And I, I personally know a couple of people who came close to dying um, because they didn't know what was going on and they just lost so much weight and, you know, couldn't keep anything down and everything. So, and that's one reason why, you know, when I teach about it, about it and, and get all the negative pushback, I just say, well, you know, I, this is, you know, it's not just theoretical but it is also personal i do know people that have been through this and so you know it is real it is serious and we need to understand it and we need to be able to give tools to people so that you know i think about medical cannabis users and if there's a way to screen people before they decide to become medical cannabis patients to understand like is this something that you might need to watch out for if so then maybe we need to avoid these cb1 agonists and try to find other routes to you know treat your problem or whatever, you know, this, there's so many different ways that understanding CHS can benefit a lot of people, whether they ever experience CHS symptoms or not. Um, so I'm really excited and I'm really stoked to see 
you know, what you do in the future and, and how this all plays out and what other questions you come up with. Cause that's the kind of the exciting thing about research, right? It's like you do all this stuff and then you come up with more questions that you didn't maybe think to ask um, before. So um, really excited to see what we learn from all of that. And um, as we sign off here, um, I don't know if, you know, you have a website or anything to, to share with people on how to keep track of some of the developments with this, but I wanted to give you a chance in the last couple of minutes here to let people know how to follow your work and, and keep up with some of this that's going on. And then you mentioned uh, the screening tools and stuff that may be coming down right. the pipeline in the next few months. Um, yeah, anything you want to share before we sign off? Sure. So the company website uh, for Credo Science is credo, C-R-E-D-O dash science dot com. Um, okay. uh, there are links there to the study, which was published in the journal called Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research. Um, that article, um, the study uh, is in, is open source. Uh, we invested a lot of money so that anyone can read this. It's not subject to a paywall. Uh, so it is also on the Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research website. Um, and free access, probably easiest place, uh, is at ethanrusso.org. That's my personal website. If people go to the library there, they'll see this study, uh, which they can download and print. Um, again, nice. that can be freely disseminated. Um, the diagnostic test we expect to be available uh, probably August or September 2021. Uh, from Endocana Health, E-N-D-O-C-A-N-N-A Health, H-E-A-L-T-H dot com. Um, so um, a website is being set up and uh, this would be available on physician order. Uh, it's not yeah. something where a uh, consumer um, can order it themselves yet. Um, but um, on a doctor's order, it would be available. Okay, cool. So anyone listening that may be, you know, wrestling with this, they can at least let their physicians know that this tool is is available or going to be available, and um, and then try to get access to it that way. Um, exactly. So that's great. Well, well, this has been a, a great discussion as always. Um, I always enjoy speaking with you and and diving into all of these interesting nuances about cannabinoid science. Um, so uh, with that, everybody, I hope you've learned something here. Definitely go check out the paper. You know, thank you for making it open access. That's something we talked about in our last um, interview, but I always appreciate that a, a lot of the work you do ends up coming out open access, which is great, not just for getting the information out there, but for educators like myself that want to share it and teach people. Um, it's it's a, a really huge benefit. So thank you for doing that. Um, and yeah, so everyone listening, thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you probably know where to find us, but Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, we're all over the place. Just search for Curious About Cannabis or go to our website at cacpodcast.com and you can check out all of our episodes and all sorts of other stuff we have going on. So with that, everybody, stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. 